You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. Two notes for today. First, I have a little bit of a chest cold. Nothing big or dangerous, but it's there, so my narration might be a little gravelly today. Sorry about that. Second, I want to remind you that we have a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, which gives you a general overview of where our expedition is going for this series, so check it out if you desire. Also, I want to let you know that I put some links to some great photos of the expedition on the site as well. I recommend taking a look at them. You can see Candido Rondone in his perfect dress whites, Kermit Roosevelt with a big bushy frontiersman beard, that sort of thing. It's nice seeing all the people involved, so as we go on this journey, we can put names to faces. And that's it for notes. On to Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. Last time, we left the Roosevelt-Rondon scientific expedition at the city of Corumba, which is on the Paraguay River in southwest Brazil. The men had traveled upriver from Buenos Aires about a thousand miles, or 1,600 kilometers, as the crow flies. Roosevelt and Rondon had joined the rest of the expedition in Corumba on December 15, 1913. The men of the expedition had been in Corumba for about three weeks before Roosevelt's arrival. The naturalists, George Cherry and Leo Miller, took the time to collect plant and animal specimens. As a note, Father John Zahm, the man who had been the mastermind of this expedition, had intended for the men to travel upriver in a pair of steel-hauled motorboats. The boats, however, were left behind in Buenos Aires, as they were found to be too heavy and thus unsuitable for use. Instead, the expedition would take a side-wheeled steamer, the Neoac, for the next part of the journey, which would entail a three-week voyage up the Paraguay and then Sepotuba rivers to the frontier town of Tupuruoan. From there, the expedition would have a 400-mile, or 645-kilometer, overland march to the headwaters of the River of Doubt. Over the next 10 days, the expedition would prepare for their departure. Samples collected by Miller and Cherry were boxed up and ready to go back to New York. Provisions were gathered and loaded on board the steamer. Roosevelt took time to go on a jaguar hunt. Also, a doctor was added to the expedition's ranks, Jose Cachazira. To travel into the wilds without a doctor would have been a really bad idea. The Newark would depart on Christmas Day 1913. The steamer was loaded with men, boxes, crates, and gear. One of the more interesting items was a pair of lightweight canoes, capable of carrying three to four men and a ton of cargo. Anthony Fiala, the expedition's quartermaster, had ordered them from Canada, and they were based on the designs of Native American canoes. One other addition to the expedition was a pack of dogs, meant to help hunt on the upcoming expedition. 
A quick note about the endeavor as it got underway. I think it is safe to say that there was a general uneasiness in the minds of some of the more experienced men about the upcoming journey. Descending the River of Doubt would likely mean going downriver from an altitude of at least 1,000 to 1,500 feet, or 300 to 450 meters. This would mean rapids and waterfalls. Some of the men were a bit concerned that President Roosevelt and some of the other members of the team did not realize how difficult this could potentially be. Kermit Roosevelt was amongst those who had these exact concerns. He thought the dangers of the proposed journey were being downplayed. This uneasiness was not helped by the somewhat chaotic nature of the events leading up to this point. Just a couple of months ago, they were getting ready for an extensive tour of the great rivers of the Amazon, but that had changed, forcing the men to adapt to a new objective. People likely sat around saying, hey, do we have the right team for this? Do we have the correct supplies for this? That sort of thing. And these changes hadn't helped the quartermaster, Anthony Fiala, who was left to try and figure out how to adapt to these new plans. It made a lot of people just a bit uneasy. The Niuak would take three weeks to reach the village of Tapuru Oan, traveling up the Paraguay River and then the Sepotuba River. The voyage had been easy, with many small villages along the way. Thus, food was plentiful. President Roosevelt liked his routines, and he would stick to them on the journey upriver. He would rise early, 5 a.m., have a breakfast, often of sardines, ham, coffee, and biscuits, and then go off on a walk or a hunt before the steamship departed. The men, by the way, were astounded by Roosevelt's treks. He had never given up his habit of long, vigorous walks. Author Candace Millard, in her book on the River of Doubt expedition, said that while at the White House, Roosevelt would torture his cabinet by forcing them to take long walks with him. On this stretch of their voyage, Anthony Fiala wrote about Roosevelt going on a hunt one morning. Well, he said that all the men involved came back absolutely exhausted, like staggering into camp they were so spent. As for Roosevelt, he would emerge from the brush, covered in dust but just fine, helping along one of the Brazilian officers, who could barely stand he was so tired. Fiala had called out and asked Roosevelt if he was all right, and the ex-president replied, quote, I'm bully, end quote. It is a reminder that despite being 54 years old, Roosevelt was as tough as they came. By the way, these hunts would produce not just meat, but specimens to be preserved and sent back to the States. Roosevelt would kill a taper, as well as various types of deer. I mentioned Roosevelt liked his routines, and the same was true for Colonel Rondon. In military fashion, he would rouse everyone with a bugle call and line up his men and call out orders for the day. The Oak would reach the frontier village of Tapuru Oan on January 16, 1914. This was the end of the line for the steamer, as the river got too shallow to support such a heavy vessel. The village was a small outpost built around the offices of the Telegraph Commission, or the Rondon Commission as it was often called. Now, a few things about the expedition. First, while the voyage upriver had not been too difficult, the environment was wearing on the men. It was hot, which meant mosquitoes, and that meant malaria. Kermit Roosevelt had suffered bouts of malaria ever since he was a child, and he now struggled with it yet again. However, for Kermit, this was part of life on the frontier, and he pushed himself through such episodes. The same could not be said for some of the others. Frank Harper, who was Roosevelt's personal assistant, and a person I did not mention before, had caught malaria and was miserable because of it. It was so bad he would beg off going any further and take the next boat back to Buenos Aires. Second, Roosevelt and Rondon knew that they would actually need to par down the number of men who actually went down the River of Doubt, but these decisions were still a few weeks away. Third, the arrival at Tapiru Oan would give the team an important addition. This was Lieutenant Joao Lyra, a military engineer and surveyor. Lyra had been on the expedition that had discovered the River of Doubt and was one of Rondon's most trusted officers. And fourth, the expedition was heading north and gradually increasing in elevation. 
So at Tupir Ruan, Rondon had arranged for 110 mules and 70 oxen for the upcoming overland trek. However, no one had predicted Roosevelt's team would have so much stuff. Add in the fact that the Brazilian government had sent hundreds of boxes of gear and gifts to aid the expedition, and it was overwhelming. Rondon immediately sent out men to get more pack animals. This would delay the expedition for several days. It didn't help that many of the animals they added were old or wild. Many had never carried packs and threw their loads the moment they were put on. These delays frustrated everyone. A major issue here was the lack of organization and initiative by Anthony Fiala, the expedition's quartermaster. This was a very different expedition than what had been planned three months ago. It was not a simple ride up the river anymore. Fiala needed to adapt to the new itinerary, and he didn't. He should have known everything that the expedition had and been working night and day identifying what needed to be cut and what needed to be added. However, Fiala was reluctant to cut anything that might upset Father Zahm or Roosevelt. Two things didn't help the situation. First, much of the stuff the Brazilian government had given Roosevelt was unsuitable for the expedition in its current form. An example includes a bunch of really big, nice tents. These were great for an excursion off the river for a few nights, but in the highlands and the jungles, they were too bulky and heavy. The other thing that didn't help was Colonel Rondon's reluctance to press the matter with Roosevelt or any of the Americans. The truth is that Rondon was very deferential to his guests, no doubt on orders from his government. So when they showed him all the stuff they had, he nodded politely and told his men to figure things out. And even when asked by Roosevelt, Rondon assured the president that everything would be managed. It was a mistake on the Brazilian colonel's part, as Roosevelt would have ordered his team to shed unnecessary gear. So as more oxen and mules were brought in and prepared for the march north, Rondon and Roosevelt decided to break up the expedition in order to get things moving. Captain Amucar Botelu de Mugueles, a trusted and experienced officer, would take the oxen and some mules and lead this large baggage train north across the Brazilian highlands, clearing the road and repairing bridges along the way. By the way, the captain is generally referred to as Captain Amucar, which is what I will do for our story. Roosevelt and Rondon and the main body of the expedition would go next, riding mules and following the crude telegraph road, which had been created five years earlier. In addition to Roosevelt's team and Rondon's contingent of officers, the expedition had nearly 150 camaradas, or comrades, working for them as porters and handlers. Most of these had been hired from the villages the ship had steamed by these past few weeks. They would hire even more as they continued north. The baggage train would set off on January 19th, a 400-mile, or 645-kilometer, journey across the Brazilian highlands ahead of them. Let us now talk about the Brazilian highlands, or the Brazilian plateau, as it is also called. Oftentimes when we say Brazil, we only think of the Amazon and its thick jungles. And for good reason. However, in the south of Brazil is the Brazilian highlands, a plateau that covers nearly 2 million square miles of territory, or 4.5 million kilometers. This is nearly half of Brazil. The average elevation of the plateau is around 3,300 feet, or 1,000 meters. However, in the areas our expedition is heading into, they will never go more than about 2,000 feet, or 600 meters. The landscape on the plateau varies, sometimes dramatically. One day it can be a jungle, the next a desert. Water will, at times, be difficult to find. The departure from Tapiru Oan would help improve the mood of Roosevelt and his men. They had been getting antsy waiting to move on. However, almost immediately, it became clear that this was not going to be as simple as it appeared. The mules and oxen were unruly, many of the camaradas unable to handle them. Also, the highlands were hard on the animals. The grass they needed to survive was scarce, as the ground was often this scrubby sand. Roosevelt wrote this of the lands, quote, Away from the broad, beaten route, every step of man's progress represented slashing a trail with the machete 
through the tangle of brushes, low trees, thorny scrub, and interlaced creepers, end quote. Another issue was the surprising lack of game, which meant the team would have to get into their rations sooner than desired. Rondone, without telling Roosevelt, would slash his men's rations within a few days of departing, cutting their meals from three per day to two. He did not ask the Americans to cut their rations. This is not a great situation. You have men working hard, 12 or 14 or 16 hour days, and thus they need more calories, not less. Yet here they were being cut by about a third. This can lead to men getting weak and making them susceptible to disease and illness. Meals, by the way, typically consisted of beans, rice, biscuits, and coffee. Meat might be had by killing one of the oxen or shooting some wild game, but that was rare. The crossing included some stretches where water was not found for 20 or more miles. Father Zahn would write this about the region, quote, Certain areas are as treeless as the desert lands of New Mexico and Arizona, end quote. In an ominous sign, the expedition began to see the bleached bones of dead oxen and mules, most from Rondone's expedition five years earlier. The pack animals, by the way, were often let free to wander at night to go find their own food and water. The crazy part is that the weather in the highlands would turn from desperately dry and arid to a sopping downpour overnight. This made the crude road a pit of mud, and the animals, and humans, struggled to move forward in it. It wasn't long before the pack animals, tired and hungry, revolted. Some just bucked and bucked until they threw their loads. Others gave up and had to be stripped of anything in hope that they would find forage and recover. Much of this gear was simply left on the side of the trail, no one really knowing what was being lost. And this fraying of the nerves was happening amongst the men as well. Some of the porters, the camaradas, deserted, and the tired and hungry men got into fights and disputes more frequently. Even a few Brazilian officials, including one of the army officers, resigned from the expedition and turned around. Now, despite all these issues, progress was made, slowly but surely, and the core men of the expedition were bonding through these hardships. At the top, there was Roosevelt and Rondone. The two, from the get-go, had developed a tremendous respect for one another. Roosevelt was smart enough to recognize that this was Rondone's land, and he deferred to the man, but Roosevelt was never shy about offering his opinions. But the president never acted above Rondone. An example of this was that Roosevelt always insisted Rondone be given every courtesy he was offered. So if someone offered Roosevelt a chair, he would refuse unless there was one for Rondone. And while I noted that Rondone was very deferential to Roosevelt and the Americans, he was not afraid to state his opinions and hold his ground when he believed he was correct. Rondone, by the way, was a proponent of what was called positivism, a theory that embraced such things as reason, logic, and science, and rejected mysticism. I'm being really simple with that explanation, but Roosevelt respected the man's forward-thinking ideals. He would say of Rondone, quote, The colonel's positivism was in very fact to him a religion of humanity, a creed that bade him to be just and kind and useful to his fellow man, to live his life bravely, and no less bravely to face death, without reference to what he believed or did not believe, or what the unknown hereafter might hold for him, end quote. In many ways, Rondone and Roosevelt were alike. They embraced the sciences, common sense, and strong moral character. They led by example. But while Roosevelt was a man of bluster and action who charged up the hill, Rondone was a careful but strong hand that he offered to others to come along for a few steps. They were, to be honest, two very different, but two very similar, men. Outside of the two leaders, the other men would get to know one another around the campfires at night, sharing stories from their adventures around the world. You can imagine the mixture of English, Portuguese, French, and one or two other languages being spoken. Rondone had tales of his 25 years working in the Amazon interior. George Cherry told stories of his time fighting with insurgents in Venezuela. And Fiala recounted the horrors of his two years stranded on the Arctic ice. 
but no one wove a tale like Teddy Roosevelt. The man was a machine when it came to telling yarns, most of them true. From his time in the Dakotas to the campaign in Cuba to his trek through Africa, the man wowed everyone with his endless well of entertaining stories. The best part was that Roosevelt was not dismissed as a blowhard or a braggart. He was just this larger-than-life character, and no one dominated story time like the ex-president. Everyone, from the camaradas up to Rondon, liked and respected the man. By the way, one of the hot topics of conversation around the campfire was about their destination, the River of Doubt. They had found the headwaters, but where did it go? Colonel Rondon believed the River of Doubt emptied into the Madeira, which would mean it was nearly a thousand miles long, or 1,600 kilometers. That would make it a significant waterway. Of course, there was a chance it was a minor tributary of the G. Piranha or some other river. They wouldn't know until they got there and descended the river. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. On January 25th, the expedition would get a welcome addition when three all-terrain trucks belonging to the Telegraph Commission would reach the men. The trucks had treads, sort of like crude tanks. Why they didn't start with the expedition, I don't know. I just couldn't find that answer. My guess is that they were simply out on other duties at the time. Anyhow, the trucks were used to travel between the various Telegraph outposts in the area, and they were here to help. This would give some of the more exhausted team members a ride going forward. Father Zahm was one of the first to claim a seat, although he later complained that the driver was a black man. By the way, the issue that is Father Zahm will soon come to a head. So file that comment I just made away. We will get to it a bit later. The next stop on the journey was at the telegraph station of Utarati on the Papagayu River. While nothing more than a few simple huts, the men were happy to have a roof over their heads for a change, especially when it poured rain the next day. Now, here at Uterati, there would be some developments and some big decisions that would have to be made. First, there would be tragedy. A telegram would reach the station telling Roosevelt that his cousin's daughter, 25-year-old Margaret Roosevelt, who had accompanied the expedition to South America, had contracted typhoid fever and died while returning to the United States. It cast a pail over the entire camp. Second, the all-terrain trucks could go no further. 
The trails to the north were not built for them. Third, it was time to send back as much stuff as the expedition could. This meant all the items for the museum. Animals, plants, skins, insects, native Indian arrows, beads, and a lot more. Going forward, the collection of specimens would be limited to what the team could carry downriver. Fourth, the arrival at Uterati meant the growing presence of indigenous peoples. In this case, it was the Parasi Indians. The Parasi were considered a more sophisticated tribe compared to those deeper in the jungles. Rondon had encountered them years earlier and had gotten them to give up their forest villages. They now worked at and protected the telegraph stations in the area. It is a perfect example of how Rondon had not only made successful first contact with the tribe, but had engaged them and incorporated them into a bigger world. The Parisi were allies to the expedition, but going forward, things would be much murkier. By the way, there's an interesting comment from Roosevelt's book when talking about the Parisi. It was an insightful comment, and I wanted to share it. Quote, When people talk glibly of idle savages, they ignore the immense labor entailed by many of their industries, and the really extraordinary amount of work they accomplish by the skillful use of their primitive and ineffective tools. End quote. This is a far cry from the common thought that the native peoples were lazy and stupid. Perhaps they were not advanced technologically, but Roosevelt recognized how hard they worked to get what they had, and how hard they worked just to survive. It was a rare moment of insight from Roosevelt, who was not very progressive with his attitudes towards the natives of South or North America. Anyhow, note done. The fifth item was the understanding that it was time to make some hard decisions regarding the makeup of the expedition. This was always something planned, but not something anyone really wanted to do. Decision number one. Before reaching the River of Doubt, a group of the men would break off and instead go down a different river, called the G. Piranha. This river was already known, and thus less important. This would mean the loss of Leo Miller, the naturalist. Miller, to be honest, had done nothing to deserve this fate, but the expedition had two naturalists. That was one too many at this point. Roosevelt had suggested that Miller and Cherry flip a coin to decide who went down the River of Doubt, but Miller gave the gig to Cherry in deference to the man's seniority and experience. It was a noble decision from Miller, who was missing out on what might have been the journey of a lifetime. Roosevelt felt bad for Miller and committed $1,000 towards some work Miller wanted to do in Venezuela. Decision number two would mean the departure of Anthony Fiala, not far from Muterati. Fiala would be asked to go down the Rio Papagayu, which had been yet to be fully explored, although the mouth and the headwaters were known. The truth is, the guy just wasn't very good at his job, and it became more and more apparent with each passing day. And he didn't have any other skills that were critical to the team. But the guy had tried, he had worked hard, and most everyone liked him. He was just dead weight at this point. Fiala was intensely disappointed by the decision. This had been his chance to redeem himself after his failure in the Arctic a decade earlier. That chance was now gone. Both Miller and Fiala would take with them a mix of Brazilian officers and camaradas. And this gets me to our final development, and that is Father John Augustine Zam. Roosevelt had always given the priest a lot of leeway on the expedition. The man had been a loyal supporter and had, obviously, kick-started the expedition. But now things were coming to a head. Father Zam had no skills for the jungle expedition. He did not like to work, and he expected others to do things for him. If this makes him sound entitled, well, that's pretty spot on and it will be on full display with this next bit. Because the trucks couldn't go any further, Zom proposed that he continue going forward by, and I am not kidding, a chair being made that could be lifted on two long poles, and four of the Indians could carry him. Yes, the guy really went there, and it will only get worse. Rondon was incredulous at the idea, and he bluntly said, no. Zom replied by saying, again, not kidding, quote, Indians are meant to carry priests, 
End quote. Yeah, that didn't go well. Rondon would, of course, say no, no doubt all of his pacifist ideals being put to the test at that moment. Denied by Rondon, Zom appealed to Roosevelt, which was the final straw. Roosevelt, after hearing out the man, gave the priest a firm answer, saying, quote, You will not commit such an affront to my dear Colonel Rondon's principles. End quote. And with that, Zom was done. He would be sent back to Tapiru Oan. To demonstrate just how upset Roosevelt was, he wrote up a document about the decision, which said, quote, Every member of the expedition has told me that, in his opinion, it is essential to the success and the well-being of the expedition that Father Zom should at once leave it and return to the settled country. End quote. Every member of the expedition signed it. Everyone. The truth is that this move was a long time coming. Father Zom's casual, open contempt for the blacks and the Indians had rankled many, and his inability to help in any fashion was almost as bad. If you're going to be a jerk, at least be a useful jerk. For Zom, the problem was that he wanted a river cruise and a safari, with everyone bringing him food and drink and tending to his needs. That was not Teddy Roosevelt, and it definitely wasn't Candido Rondon. Kermit Roosevelt summed it up quite well in his diary, writing, quote, Father Zom is being sent back from here. He showed himself so completely incompetent and selfish that he got on everyone's nerves and then tried a couple of things that made it easy to send him back, end quote. So with all those things decided, it was time to move on. The expedition would shed as much gear as possible. This included the two canoes that Fiala had ordered from Canada. The expedition planned on acquiring dugout canoes once at the river from the local natives for their descent. Before departing, Roosevelt would visit the local waterfall on the Papagayu River, which was reputed to be spectacular. And it is stunning. Just look at the pictures online. It is wide and has a height of nearly 300 feet, or 90 meters. And while this makes it, even today, an amazing sight, I want to point out that this is the kind of thing that the expedition was likely going to face going down the River of Doubt. Here in Uterati, the elevation was maybe 1,400 feet, or 425 meters. Well, the River of Doubt was probably not going to be much different, and they were going to have to go down that, so there would be a lot of chances for falls and rapids. No matter, the die was cast. It was time to move on. The trail north was crude, requiring men to constantly be clearing the path. This made it a slow and tiring process. Also, the mules continued to struggle, especially when it rained. Just three days out of Uterati, nine of them would be cut loose due to their poor health. It was, for the most part, miserable. The men's clothing was getting moldy and starting to rot. Malaria was a looming threat. Kermit Rosa was constantly plagued by it, his temperature reaching 102 degrees Fahrenheit one day. Still, the young man pushed on, which worried his father. Bees, gnats, bugs, swarms of them hounded the men, and even the plants seemed to have it out for the expedition. George Cherry had a thorn plunged so deeply into his foot, it temporarily paralyzed him. And if anyone got too complacent, along the trail, there were the graves of the telegraph workers who had died forging this route. The expedition would reach the Burity River on February 4th, allowing the men to have a much-needed bath. A couple of days later, Roosevelt huddled with Rondon to talk about the attrition rate of the mules and oxen. Roughly half of the expedition's hundred or so mules were gone, and many others were lame. Roosevelt suggested that everyone walk, leaving the mules as strictly pack animals, but Rondon rejected the idea. Still, the two men would order everyone to leave behind anything that wasn't absolutely necessary, and thus the men were tossing aside books and gear and other personal belongings. The ox carts were also abandoned due to the difficult conditions. On February 8th, the expedition reached another isolated telegraph station on the Juru Ana River. As a side note, the expedition would get a telegram telling them that Anthony Fiala had almost died on the first day on his trip down the Papagayu River. Fiala and his group, using native dugout canoes, had been swept down a stretch of water called the Rapids of the Devil, and he had had to be rescued by his comrades. 
Diallo would swear off the heavy native dugout canoes and go back and get the Canadian canoes. They would go on to perform brilliantly on the descent of the Papagayu, just as he believed they would, a small vindication for the man. So, that aside, it is time to introduce a new character to our tale, and that is the local Nambiquara Indians. Roosevelt and his team were heading into the lands of the Nambiquara, one of the most primitive and isolated tribes in the Amazon. Other than a few incidents over the past century, the Nambiquara had only been encountered six years earlier by none other than Candido Rondon. Rondon and his colleague, Lieutenant Lyra, had come across one of their villages and had entered, bringing gifts. It was a typical thing in these situations. You go in, leave some gifts, and then you withdraw. It gave the indigenous people the option of engaging or not. The idea was not to force the issue. Well, on this first encounter, Rondon would be greeted by a hail of poison-tipped arrows, forcing him to withdraw. The Nambiquara were experts at camouflage. They hid in the jungles in the day and came out at night to attack. Rondon would be persistent with his offerings, but never use force or threats. Never. He just kept leaving gifts, giving the Nambiquara the time and space they needed. One brilliant idea was to play a phonograph in the night, Wagner drifting through the deepest jungles of the Amazon. The Nambiquara were reportedly entranced by the music. Rondon and these mysterious natives finally came into contact. He had used time, patience, and decency to win them over, never showing any signs of hostility. And now, six years later, the Nambiquara maintained a peace with the telegraph workers, who gave them gifts and stayed out of their way. The latter point was big with Rondon. Do not interfere with the Nambiquara, never. And if they were provoked, his men were forbidden to retaliate. Rondon would issue this famous command, quote, Die if you must, but never kill, end quote. Those are hard words to swallow for a person whose life is in jeopardy, but it was Rondon's genuine belief that this was how to incorporate the indigenous people into the modern world. Violence and threats were never productive. This, as you can imagine, ran counter to many attitudes. Which leads me to this side story. Hermann von Ehring, the German-born director of the Sao Paulo Museum, had publicly stated that the native tribes of the Amazon were likely fated to go away. They were in the way of civilization, and as primitives, they were destined to be swallowed or destroyed. This attitude was not uncommon at the time. Our von Ehring would write the following about the subject, quote, It is worth registering here that the American General Custer said, The only good Indian is a dead Indian. End quote. Now, I want to point out that it was American General Philip Sheridan who had said those words, and the phrasing is actually, quote, The only good Indians I ever saw were dead. End quote. Which isn't much better, but may as well be accurate when we can. Anyhow, Rondon, upon reading this, challenged von Ehring to debate the subject, and the colonel's argument resulted in a movement to form the Indian Protective Service, the first agency devoted to protecting the native inhabitants of the nation. Rondon would be the first director. I talk about this subject because the attitudes of von Ehring and his followers were not so different from those of Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was very big on a person's character. Face to face, he could respect anyone who demonstrated his or her abilities or skills. But Roosevelt believed that the American Indian needed to move beyond tribes and so forth and accept becoming Americans. Rondon believed this as well, at least to a degree. He felt that the natives of the Amazon would have to be incorporated into the civilized world. I am using air quotes there. But Rondon believed it needed to be done on the terms of the native peoples. This meant slowly, with compassion, and with patience. It was a very humane approach reflecting Rondon's beliefs. Men like Roosevelt had a more simplistic approach, adapt or die. Okay, maybe not that simple, but you get the idea. I talk about this at length because it means that Rondon's views and Roosevelt's views are bound to come into conflict at some point, especially as the team begins to encounter tribes that have never been seen before. 
No matter, the expedition would soon have their first encounters with the Nabiquara. These people were extremely primitive. They wore no clothing and were hunter-gatherers, meaning they were constantly on the move. When the Nabiquara approached the camp, they would call out from their hiding places so everyone knew they were friendly. They did this repeatedly before finally showing their faces. Also, to again show their peaceful intentions, they brought no weapons. Roosevelt and his men were stunned by the primitive appearance of the Nabiquara. They were naked and had quills and sticks pierced in their noses and lips. However, once the peace had been established, they were quite friendly, even joyful. They liked to dance and were curious and cheerful. Kermit Roosevelt liked them, noting that they were always laughing and playing. One off-putting trait of the Nambiquara was their lack of personal space. They would get to within a breath of a person's face and then talk super fast. In most cases, a man such as Roosevelt would have reacted with a show of force, taking this as a threat. But now he endured being a bit of a spectacle, and that is because that he saw that the Nambiquara clearly trusted and respect Rondon, and Roosevelt was, wisely, content to follow the lead of his Brazilian counterpart. However, it should always be remembered that one wrong move could mean conflict. On February 11th, the men would come upon an abandoned Indian village. There they would find three soldiers, dead, and buried vertically, their shoulders and heads sticking out of the ground. What caused this was not known, but it was a reminder that death awaited those who ventured too far off the trail. Over the next couple of weeks, the expedition would push north, deeper and deeper into the jungle. On February 24, 1914, just six miles from the River of Doubt, the expedition would have a parting. Naturalist Leo Miller, along with Captain Amukar and several other men, would set off for the G. Piranha River, as planned. Not long after that, the rest of the expedition would come to their objective, the Rio da Duvida, the River of Doubt. It was a twisting, fast-moving dark river, and no one knew anything about what lay ahead. Theodore Roosevelt had always wanted to be an explorer, and well, like it or not, now he was truly going to be one. Five years earlier, Rondon and his men had strung a 65-foot-long bridge across the river. The bridge was still there, and the men set out about strengthening and repairing it. Rondon would reach out to the Nambiquara Indians and buy seven dugout canoes. These were, essentially, hollowed-out tree trunks. They were heavy, 2,500 pounds or 1,135 kilos, hard to steer, not very buoyant, and easily swamped as the boat, once loaded, sat only a couple of inches above the waterline. Of the dugouts, Roosevelt wrote, quote, One was small, one was cranky, and two were old, waterlogged, and leaky. The other three were good. End quote. The expedition had tons of supplies and 22 men. The roster was as follows. Roosevelt, Rondone, Kermit Roosevelt, naturalist George Cherry, Dr. Jose Cachazira, 16 of the strongest camaradas, and we can't forget at least a couple of dogs. The expedition had provisions for 50 days, and that's not full provisions, but rations just enough to survive on. With luck, they could do some hunting and fishing, as well as gather nuts on the descent. The big question was, just where did the River of Doubt go? Well, for that, we will have to wait until next time. In part three of our story, Roosevelt and Rondone will head down the River of Doubt. Their story is not dissimilar to that of Francisco de Oriana, who we covered on the show many years ago. Oriana, stranded in the depths of the jungle, had been forced to build boats to sail down the length of the Amazon, not knowing where the great river would take him. Now, maybe Roosevelt and his men were not that desperate, but here they were, getting ready to get on a river in crude canoes, food in short supply, the jungles filled with potentially hostile natives on all sides. Anyhow, that is how we will end things for today. I just want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Please join us next time for part three in our story on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Go to airwavemedia.com 
to check out other independent podcasts, such as Ben Franklin's World and Big Picture Science, and many others. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.